Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Okay, everyone, welcome to Strict Scrutiny, a podcast so fierce it's fatal in fact. We're two of your hosts. I'm Kate Shaw. And I'm Melissa Murray. And after back-to-back shows debriefing the October sitting of the Supreme Court, Jamie and Leah are taking a well-deserved break, uh, and we're taking the baton. How are you feeling, Melissa? I am so over Halloween. <laughs> like, I, like, I'm so glad Halloween is done. It just happened, but I literally felt like it was a two-week roll up to Halloween and it left me spent and I'm I just yeah I don't want to think about it for another six months oh I felt a little kind of like postpartum this morning I was like sort of felt kind of sad and aimless it was like this thing we had been building towards for those I mean for weeks in my household too was gone (laughs) okay I don't even want to get into postpartum but when did Halloween become such a huge thing? Because I remember yeah. in when I was growing up, yeah. it was you went and bought a costume. Like maybe you went to like Walmart or Target and you bought a plastic costume and a mask that you're going to feel really hot in. And I, I grew up in Florida, so you're definitely going to mm. feel really hot in this plastic costume. And then that was the night. Like now there's like haunted houses. The school has a parade. There's like 50,000 things the weekend before. I mean, Halloween is a two-week yeah. event. Yeah, there's like this – Halloween industrial complex that I think has basically cropped up since we were kids. And I had the same, same experience. It was like, we didn't put that much thought into it. Like, it was always freezing cold and often snowing because I grew up in Chicago. So the costumes were, like, not even visible, which was a bummer, but, like, kind of routine. And then we traded candies, and then they, like, kind of disappeared. My parents took them, I think, and then they were gone. The costume game has yeah. ratcheted up yes. so much. So this year, I took my son to see this play called Afternoon of the Moles, this French experimental theater cool. thing. Well, it was kind of cool, except I fell asleep during quite a lot of it because I was so tired. But he loved it. And then he decided he wanted to be a mole for Halloween. And there are no mole costumes no, anywhere. Yeah, I so I was on Etsy, no mole costumes. <laughs> like, obviously, like, there was one mole costume on Amazon. It was $1,200. And I was like, absolutely not. Well, you didn't just stitch something together? I guess <laughs> Like, so, okay, no, I can do a lot of things, yes, but I can't sew. Um, so I made an announcement to my class. Does anyone know anyone who can sew? And one of my students wow. put me in contact with someone. So you did – it was a homemade costume, but it just commissioned, a, not, not yeah, made Yeah, not you. made in my home, uh-huh. but definitely oh, homemade. It was, very, so it was very cute. Um, so any SCOTUS Halloween content uh, in your neighborhood? I saw a lot of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Still, yeah. In previous years, I have seen more. I did not see many this year, I have to say. I don't – I was – what, so the year that Justice Scalia passed away, I remember seeing a Scalia mm. costume. Mm-hmm. But he was like sort of an interesting personality, and it was a Scalia and Ginsburg pairing, which I thought was sweet. Very cute. Um, but yeah, she's the only. Maybe, maybe she has the most distinctive look yeah, too of any justice. Um, yeah, there were there were a couple in my neighborhood, not so many. Um, I did see um, there was this amazing three carved pumpkin setups right near my house that. Um, had three three pumpkins carved in the shape of the faces of the three female justices, oh, and they cool. were incredible. I tweeted a picture. Um, and the person who carved them did tell me that all evening people had been like, oh, that's great, RBG. So to my R, who's the third pumpkin? And I was like, oh, 
come on, guys. Like, just the process of deduction. Like, um, But it is true that Justice Kagan, as we have spoken about, is not as recognizable or as much of an icon as the other two. Well, I mean, she kind of is in a little bit of suitor land right now. But I imagine she's going to kind of come out of that. That's probably right. I think she's making a break for it. In any event, we have a great show planned for you today for this post-Halloween show. Um, we've got some breaking news. We're going to preview some cases for the upcoming November sitting. And then we're going to do a deep dive into court culture and talk a little bit about some issues relating to equity and equality at the SCOTUS Bar. So it's going to be a great show. Let's start with some breaking news. Um, we should say that there is a lot going on in the country right now. So, no. <laughs> What's going on? So, well, <laughs> where to start? Um, we should maybe mention that yesterday the House of Representatives passed a series of resolutions authorizing the formal impeachment inquiry um, that they had already been engaged in. Um, and so I think that things are likely to pick up pretty quickly on that front. We'll see public hearings before too long. Um, but we're going to focus today on breaking news that doesn't involve Congress and the president, um, or at least not centrally. So we had a few recent polls that we thought we should mention on public confidence in the Supreme Court. Um, So there are actually three polls out uh, this week showing to varying degrees that there's actually pretty significant public confidence in the Supreme Court. So um, first, an Annenberg poll found that 68 percent of the public um, trusts the Supreme Court to act in the best interest of the public. Um, A Gallup poll found that around 54 percent of uh, around 54% of people approve of the job the court is doing. And a Marquette poll found that of the three branches of government, 57% find the Supreme Court most trustworthy compared with 22% for Congress and 21% for the president. And you can obviously unpack a lot of that data. Uh, there is definitely sort of an ideological valence to some of the responses. Let me just uh, mention Marquette for a minute. So 52% of very conservative uh, respondents in the Marquette poll have high confidence in the Supreme Court compared to 31% of very liberal respondents. So so you see there's a pretty significant um, ideological break. And there's also some shifts over time. So the Gallup poll showed a pretty significant shift in the relative levels of support um, just in a couple of years of the Trump administration. So conservative support for the court uh, nearly tripling since 2016. So I guess as a general matter and in terms of the kind of ideological breakdown we see there, what do you make of all this? What do you think, Melissa? Well, I think it's actually more interesting that so few people find the political branches to be trustworthy. So, I mean, it's great that lots of people find the court to be trustworthy or think the court is doing a good job. And I think that's especially important given the bruising confirmation battle we had last year. So it shows that public confidence has rebounded to some degree to the extent it was hobbled. Um, But I I mean, I think, again, to have a thriving, functional democracy – You might wonder about the incredible skew between the political branches, Congress and the executive and the court. That can't be healthy. No, I agree with that. And I think that this polling didn't uh, do more kind of comparative confidence testing. But there are other polls that have asked about trust in institutions more broadly, both institutions of government, federal versus state or local, other kinds of institutions. And a lot of that polling shows incredibly low levels of trust in every institution across the board with often the exception of the military and sometimes the police, um, which is unsettling in a system that is a democracy and not a military dictatorship, that that it would only be those institutions that 
exceed 50 percent of public support. Um, and so it certainly seems to me a good thing to have, even if not a directly democratically accountable branch, but a branch of government exceed the 50 percent threshold. Um, and, you know, I don't know that sort of approve of the job the Supreme Court is doing is the most constructive way to phrase the I, question. I, I and so that, that gave me some. people understand the job the Supreme Court is doing. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I think that's right. And then also approval, I think, is something better asked about political actors, right? What I think yeah. matters is not approval sort of seems to suggest agreement. And yeah. whether or not we agree with the results of particular cases, whether we believe it is acting in a legitimate yes. fashion as an institution is, is a totally I, I think, different a different thing. question. Yeah. Uh, although I think that you know, that the, the, the two are related. And so I do think that the form of the question matters so much in polling. And so I'm not sure that all these polls really kind of um, frame the questions in the best way possible. Why but are it, they asking us? I mean, we could do this podcast. <laughs> we could write poll questions. <laughs> we can make Halloween costumes. Right, we could do if, it all. If there, are, if there are folks who design these polls listening, call us. We're every women. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of bolstering public confidence, uh, despite a summer spent recovering from pancreatic cancer treatments, Justice Ginsburg seems to be back at it, and she is very quick to reassure us all that she is on the pink of health. So last week, Justice Ginsburg made a visit out west to the University of California, Berkeley. I'm a little homesick. Where she was the inaugural Herma Hill K. lecturer, and she gave a public talk before faculty, staff, and students. And just so everyone knows, Herma Hill K. passed away in 2017, and she was the first woman dean of Berkeley Law, and indeed the first woman in the country to lead an elite law school. And she and RBG were terrific friends and colleagues, and they co-wrote the first casebook on sex discrimination law. So it's incredibly meaningful that Justice Ginsburg took the time to go out to California to be the inaugural Herma Hill K lecturer and to celebrate her friend's legacy in this tremendous way. But while she was out there, she, of course, was asked about her health. It was the first question that she got. And she said that she was feeling very well, especially as compared to six months ago, and that she was still working out and that, in fact, she had continued her grueling physical regime throughout her treatment for pancreatic cancer, which made me feel a little lazy because it takes absolutely nothing to make me give up on working out in a morning. But she she's is committed. always at it. She is. Um, I will say that she has seemed really vigorous and strong from the bench. Um, so when I was at the Title VII arguments and the arguments I've listened to since, like, her voice is strong, it's clear, she's not pausing much. I mean, she, she, she sounds good. Well, she was also in fine form um, on a Wednesday night event at Georgetown University Law Center where she spoke alongside Hillary and Bill Clinton about the judicial nomination process, and they talked about the quote-unquote golden days of judicial nominations. I don't know when those were, but definitely less fractious than the last couple of judicial nominations have been. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was that President Clinton was reminiscing about his conversation with Justice Ginsburg in advance of nominating her, and he said that they had a quite frank discussion about abortion, and he was impressed that she approached the topic as she would approach any kind of constitutional question. And he didn't push her about her views particularly but because he can't ask her for her views and what she would do in a particular case. But he was very impressed that she was just willing to talk about it and didn't seem afraid to tackle the topic, which yeah. I thought was interesting. You know, when you say, you know, he didn't ask her particular questions because there's a norm in not asking those yes. kinds of questions, it reminded me of something that I hadn't thought about in a little while, which was um, 
I thought I remember when both when the president, President Trump, was thinking was, you know, going through the process of interviewing nominees or, you know, prospective nominees to fill first the Scalia and then the Kennedy seat. So, you know, he has these one on one interviews with the top three or four contenders. And, you know, there actually usually is in the White House a true one on one conversation between the president and a prospective Supreme Court justice like staff leaves and you know, I worked in the Obama White House. I think, you know, President Obama, former constitutional law professor, had some pretty substantive conversations that I am sure were exceedingly careful about those lines that yes. you just referenced. Um, but we all know that President Trump, you know, runs roughshod over all these sorts of norms. It's, and it's a more unorthodox presidency. Sure, that is so diplomatic, Melissa. <laughs> I've been practicing so hard. <laughs> um, and so, and I really thought about it at the time, like, what did they talk about? What, what, why would we think that where norms are sort of smashed in every other sphere, the norms about sort of proper subjects of conversation with prospective Supreme Court nominees would have been heated? I, I just don't know. So I don't even, I, I can't even contemplate what was discussed. Um, the one thing I remember thinking was when the Gorsuch nomination was about to be announced. Do you remember it was kind of like a Bachelor-esque totally. kind of thing? Like, Neil Gorsuch, you get the final rose. Yep. <laughs> Do you remember that? What could someone like Neil Gorsuch have been thinking? I mean, you know, Neil Gorsuch is a serious person. He was a serious judge on the Tenth Circuit. And then all of a sudden, you're in this kind of weird reality TV show. And obviously, you want this job. But you've got to, like, I'll take that final rose. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Yeah, no, but I mean, so what are, what are your options, right? You're told that this is how the announcement's going to go down, and so I guess you just acquiesce. But I think that that exactly illustrates the point. Like, if the president starts, you know, raising improper questions about abortion or do? executive power, like, if every incentive is just to, mm -hmm. you know, sort of not make any waves and just sort of, I presume that either Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch um, would have deflected those kinds of inquiries. I mm -hmm. think that they at least are very steeped in the norms about kind of proper engagement between the president and a prospective Supreme Court nominee. Um, but I don't know they would have walked out. I doubt it. Well, so the other question is, do you think like John Kelly left them alone? Right. Because, I mean, there's that too. Yeah. Right. I mean, he was kind of, you know, the minder in chief for a while. I, I could see someone very easily deciding like, President Obama can handle this. I'm out. But I could imagine someone saying, you know what? I'm just yeah. going to stay. Well, you remember here. like with the sort of very famous Jim Comey conversation, President yes. Trump asks Jeff Sessions to leave the room. Yeah. And so yeah, well, what do you do if he asks? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, um, but, upside down. A world turned upside down. That's right. Um, in any event, um, some new information coming out about the high stakes world of abortion challenges. On Tuesday, October 29th, U.S. District Judge Myron Thompson, who is a judge in the Middle District of Alabama, issued a ruling in the legal challenge to the Human Life Protection Act, which is that Alabama law that was passed last spring that would have banned abortion almost entirely in the state of Alabama. Uh, it is set to go, or was set to go into effect on November 15th, but the real issue here is that it threatens serious felony charges to abortion providers up to 99 years in prison for performing an abortion or 10 years in prison for attempting to perform an abortion. And um, you can go and read Judge Thompson's order. It's only about 17 pages. It's very spare. It's a very clear rehearsal of all of the extant abortion precedents. And he talks about how 
they are all violated by a law that would do this. But the real thing I thought was interesting here were that there are three pages that Judge Thompson devotes to the question of whether abortion providers have standing to assert constitutional claims on behalf of their patients. And this, dear listener, is important because you'll remember this is a key question in that June Services versus Gee case, the Louisiana Admitting Privileges case, that the court just took cert on and we'll hear later this term. So in his opinion, Judge Thompson talks about this issue and he is a smart man. He is totally teeing this up because he know not only will it be important in this 11th Circuit appeal of this case, it is going to be important going forward as the court thinks about that issue in June services. So did you read this opinion? Yeah, yeah, I took a look at it. I mean, you're right. It's really short. It just sort of says, look, sometimes these cases require a complex balance. This is not one of those cases. Like this Mm -hmm. case is flatly unconstitutional and we don't really even need to work very hard to explain why given existing Supreme Court precedent. Um, And I did think in the short discussion of third party standards, the opinion makes clear that it's not only that just as a matter of kind of principle of, of sort of, you know, logic, if these cases are to be adjudicated at all, doctors and parties other than pregnant women, um, given the ordinary kind of timeline of litigation, must be permitted to raise claims like this. Um, but it also points to Supreme Court cases that seem to make quite clear that that, that that standing is has been endorsed as a matter of Supreme Court doctrine. So stare decisis is implicated even at the standing question, not just as to the merits of this case. And I thought that was especially important because yeah. you'll remember it was the court. Who added that question? Yeah, no, right. I mean, and and Lee and Jamie talked about this a little bit in the last episode. It was, I think, people were s- startled Surprise. and al- alarmed um, yeah. that that the court reached out to, yeah. you know, inject into the into this case this well settled principle of how a case like this might be litigated. Um, and so, so yeah, no, that's alarming. And I think that these three pages, you know, make quite clear that the law is settled, but that doesn't mean the court will not, and is at least not thinking about unsettling it. Starry decisis is for suckers. <laughs> We're going to do this at least once every episode. <laughs> at least once every episode. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, so the next thing we wanted to flag in the breaking news vein is like kind of old news, but also kind of new news. Um, old news is always new news. That's right. Well, this is sort of a new new kind of take on some old news. So this is um, actually also kind of a short follow-up to a conversation that you and I had a few weeks ago um, when we did a deep dive on some books about the Supreme Court. And as to one of them, uh, Becoming Justice Blackman, we noted that Linda Greenhouse had drawn heavily on Justice Blackman's papers in writing that book. And Justice Blackman kept very extensive notes, right? There's a real range in terms of what the justices both kept in terms of their notes and actually what they did with them. Um, and there isn't actually uniform practice as there now is, say, under the statute that's the presidential Records Act. Like presidents once just did whatever they wanted with their papers. That's no longer the case. These are records of the United States. But as to justices, they sort of decide. Um, But in the modern era, most of them have given their records over to the Library of Congress. And so Justice Blackmun's papers are there. I've had a couple of research projects that have required me to go and sort of dive into them, and they are totally fascinating, but mostly not online. Um, So there's actually a political scientist who is in the process of uploading a lot of these papers. And so Jess Braven at the Wall Street Journal um, did a short write-up, in particular, this like deliciously catty set of remarks that Justice Blackman or notes that Justice Blackman made about some of the advocates who appeared before him, um, some of whom uh, are now well-known. So, for example, in Justice Ginsburg's first argument before the court in Frontiero, um, his notes read, a very precise, period, female, period, <laughs> reads, period. And he grades these advocates. So he, gives, he uses this weird rating system, but he ends up giving her like a B or a B minus on that and many of her other performances. Um, as to Antonin Scalia's only argument before the Supreme Court, um, the notes read, plump, period, 
dark, period. <laughs> Give him a grade of B. So this was harsh. Blackman was harsh. Uh, he was also harsh as to not the appearances of, but the performances <laughs> of both John Roberts and Sam Alito when yeah. they argued before him. Um, He's kind of like the Regina George of the court. <laughs> Like, it is kind of a mean girls moment, plump, dark, female. Reese. Oh, my God. I just looked at you like, wait, oh, Regina George is the character from Mean, for girls. mean girls. I have seen Mean Girls. Okay, good. That's good. Okay. So it's a cultural reference I did catch. I just didn't remember her name. She's the head Mean Girl? Yeah. Okay. She, she's the Queen Bee. He's okay. kind of like, this is a little That's bitchy. good. Yeah. No, it's 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 actually quite bitchy. Um, the article's behind a Wall Street Journal paywall, um, but if you can get behind it, it's very much worth a read. So this is the Jeff, the Jess Braven The Jess article. Braven article, yeah, that summarizes some of these newly publicly available papers. Well, no, so I think this is so interesting because I think black men gets what now seems like an undeserved reputation is kind of you know, maybe a bleeding heart liberal. Remember there was um, DeShaney, poor Joshua, and and then his work on abortion and how he later comes around to sort of thinking about women's equality and abortion. But then he's just like, this stuff is, he's really bitchy in some of this stuff. Plump, yeah. dark. Yeah. He also makes some, he has like some, this very alarmed note that is also in the article um, about what he thinks are the logical consequences of some of Ginsburg's arguments, which are just that sex differentiation is unconstitutional and he's like you know some wow exclamation mark like he's really scandalized by this suggestion that's like you know it's the author of Roe uh, which of course as we all know is not like an equality grounded argument um, but, maybe but he no comes surprise. around but again yeah. he comes around so I mean this is also people can change over time and um, yeah um, I also love that he was not afraid to shade former justices. So there was that point about Arthur Goldberg, who was a former justice, of course, who came back to the court in October 1972 to um, argue Curtis Flood's challenge to Major League Baseball's practice of trading players without their consent. And he gave Goldberg, a former justice, a B and said, unpleasant voice. <laughs> Maybe. Savage. Amazing. Savage. Okay. All right. Um, that's all the breaking news we have today. Uh, but don't worry. We'll have more when we come back for the next show. But for now, we're going to move forward to the November sitting. And again, the 2019 term got off to a really rollicking start with a set of high-profile Title Seven cases. The November sitting is also set to be equally explosive with some very controversial issues before the court. So, Kate, why don't you dive in? And, like, with a caveat for the listener, we are only going to preview three sets of cases in this episode. There will be another episode in the future recapping the November sitting, so we'll build in some more cases there. But the three cases for today are really interesting, and I think the most controversial one is the set of DACA cases. So do you want to start us off with those cases? Sure, that sounds great. So on November 12th, the court is going to hear argument in three consolidated cases about the so-called DACA program. So in 2012, the Obama administration announced the creation of this program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which would basically give a temporary relief from deportation, essentially a lawful status to a category of individuals who were in this kind of legal limbo, right, had been brought to this country as children, um, had lived and many of them attended college and served in the military and worked um, and gone to law school and medical school and had children and yet lacked legal status to give them essentially temporary legal status on a short-term and renewable basis pursuant to this DACA program. So you fill out some paperwork, you show that you satisfy these eligibility criteria, and you're permitted essentially to understand that you won't be targeted for deportation, and then also to apply for work permits so that you can work legally. Um, that's essentially the DACA program. Um, and it was, uh, I think, extremely successful. Something like 800,000 people have taken advantage of it. Um, quite popular um, cross-ideologically. 
But in 2017, um, the Trump administration announced that it was ending the DACA program. Right. And so, again, DACA is launched by the Obama administration mm-hmm. in 2012. There is an election in 2016 where immigration is a really big issue. And it's specifically the status of undocumented persons becomes mm-hmm. a really big issue. And now we have this new administration, which has a very different um, logic to its understanding of immigration policy, and they're now trying to roll back DACA. That's right. And, you know, something interesting is that despite running on this virulently anti-immigration platform, then-candidate Trump and President Trump in his early months in office um, seemed quite sympathetic to DACA recipients or so-called dreamers, how a lot of people refer to this category, um, and seemed to say, you know, people don't have to worry. We're not actually going to undo DACA. Um, and so I think a lot of people were lulled, lulled into a sense of security. Wasn't there also that case where Jared and Ivanka were going to help the administration be good on LGBTQ issues? And and then there we were in court a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and then there we were. And there yeah. we were. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, right. So no, and look, though, you know, obviously campaign rhetoric and, you know, isn't uh, legally binding. And so so, so the administration changed in a very um, uh, dramatic way, course, on this issue. So basically, here's what the administration did. So in 2017, the... Secretary of Homeland Security, she's actually the acting secretary at the time, um, writes this very short decision memo basically saying, we have concluded that DACA is unlawful, and so we're rescinding it. And it cites another even shorter document, which is like a one-pager basically from AG Sessions, right? So he's the attorney general at the time. basically at the time. Basically saying that DACA is unconstitutional and unauthorized by statute, and as support for that conclusion says the Fifth Circuit has – uh, basically struck down a related policy, has found it unconstitutional. And so we think this DACA policy is also unconstitutional and, and uh, contrary to statute. And so we're not making a policy choice to end DACA. We have no real choice. Our hands are tied because the courts either found or are likely to find that DACA is unlawful. And so several challenges are brought and they're successful. And they're successful for, you know, I think for good reason, because this initial set of justifications that are offered um, to explain the decision to end DACA just don't really hold water. So there's, first of all, a very blatant legal error in the AG's memo, which is that the Fifth Circuit found this related policy unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. The Fifth Circuit did strike that policy down, but had nothing to do with the Constitution. It was a pure statutory case. It was an Administrative Procedure Act case, um, finding the administration hadn't gone through the right steps when it issued this related policy. The related policy is called DAPA. It was for parents of Americans, so not DACA, but a similar policy. So I'm getting a lot of just my spidey senses are tingling. Mm -hmm. A lot of this feels very familiar. Mm -hmm. This whole idea about whether we should be probing the rationales offered by the administration for what they're doing and how much weight we should give those rationales when they prove to be a little uneven is an issue that came up in the census case. Yeah. So I think actually this case is very similar to the census case, which we talked about a lot on our first episode and actually even has some things in common with Trump versus Hawaii, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you have some government action. They're going to add a question to the census form or they're going to you know, make a major policy change with respect to immigration policy or, you know, issue this proclamation or early uh, executive order on entry into the United States. Um Maybe under some circumstances, conduct like that could be lawful. Um, But the justifications that are offered for that conduct um, either look very constitutionally suspect or just don't square. Pretextual. They seem maybe pretextual. And, and, you know, that's not – it's not quite the sort of – you know, there's no real – 
claim by the plaintiffs that there's like a f- enforcing like the administration is ridiculously claiming to be enforcing the Voting Rights Act and ending DACA, right? It actually hasn't offered, I don't think, quite so facially ridiculous a justification as the Commerce Department did in the census litigation. So it said that there are legal problems with DACA, but it's done it in this kind of ham-handed way where it's misrepresented what the lower courts have uh-huh. done, not sufficiently explain the difference between or similarities between the earlier program, DAPA, and this program, DACA, and I think really critically, not grappled with the policy implications and the human impact of ending this Mm -hmm. DACA program. So I think what the plaintiffs, and there's again a few groups of plaintiffs, there are three cases here, are largely arguing is um, whether or not this is something that in the abstract the administration could have done, it simply didn't in a legally sound way, justify the decision here. So this is a decision with massive human consequences. And when you're going to do that, government, you need to actually go through a process that is rigorous and Mm -hmm. offer an explanation that is sound and that can be scrutinized by the public. And here they haven't done that, right? What they've done is simply said, in a sort of sketchy way, the court's are likely to find this program unconstitutional or unlawful, and so we're going to end it. Um, and so that's essentially the need, you know. So, so essentially, the, the statutory lang- the standard being used here is the same one at issue in the census case, which is: is this was this action arbitrary, or capricious, or contrary to law? The same way the New York and the other challengers argued that the census litigation um, that the question was addition was arbitrary and capricious. What about the underlying substantive question: yeah. whether an administration can? plausibly and lawfully make a change in policy and rescind a program that an earlier administration put in place. I think everyone agrees that under some circumstances, of course, it is acceptable for administrations to take very different policy positions than their predecessors. If there's a Democratic president elected next year, surely executive action on immigration will look very different. But there are lots of steps that have to be taken. Um, And an administration that sort of circumvents those processes um, is likely to and should be limited in court by their, uh, you know, in their ability to effect policy changes. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, but in the abstract, of course they can make policy changes. So is this just another case of, like the census case, go back and lie better or go back and just tell us you don't want to be the Obama administration. Right. You want to do something different. Maybe. I mean, so what's, what's tricky here is that there, so later DHS Secretary Nielsen actually did write a second memo. And I think what the legal status of that memo is, is very much an open question in this case, and I think is probably going to be central to the litigation or to the oral argument. Um, but the plaintiffs say they haven't started a new – they haven't um, – the, the, the new memo, which was issued quite a while later um, after some extensive litigation had unfolded, is not a new agency action. So really what you have to do is evaluate the original agency action mm-hmm. from 2017. And in the reply brief, the federal government seems to be saying, you know, no, you can sort of use all of this justification in the Nielsen memo to understand the 2017 action, although they don't quite maintain that it's a new agency action. Um, but yeah, Nielsen explains in much more depth what you know what is driving the administration. It's still, I think, a fairly flimsy um, justification that doesn't grapple with some of the costs of ending the policy. But but I think that yes, the, the go back and lie better. If the if what the Supreme Court could basically say, we need a better justification. And I think that unlike the census case, it. I think it is likely the administration would go back and 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 redo DACA and explain it more sort of fully. I think that's right, but it may also be that they simply aren't willing to take the political hit for doing that because it's a very popular program and it's an incredibly sympathetic group, uh, the recipients of DACA, and and they just may be unwilling to do it, which is why they tried to sort of wrap this whole move um, in this veneer of like legal compulsion in the first place. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think the arguments are going to be fascinating. Um, I think I'm probably going to be at the court for them. So um, so whenever we do the debrief, I'll, I'll, I'll give everybody a read. Um, the amicus briefs in this case are really interesting. I mean, there are a lot mm-hmm. of amici who have signed on here, and they really emphasize the human dimension of this program. So they talk about the 700,000 current recipients, many of whom now have U.S. citizen children of their own, right? So, I mean, this is truly a question of families being fractured if this policy is rescinded. And then there are also universities and workplaces, corporations, um, extended families who are like sort of talking about the real impact of this policy. So, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. We usually talk about the law and especially at the Supreme Court in sort of these abstract terms. But these amici are really hammering home that this is a law with a human face. Yeah. And you know, in some ways, those feel like policy arguments, and you don't often see policy arguments of quite this sort directed at the court. But but there's actually very much a legal hook, right, which is that the administration totally failed to consider all of this when it made its decision, and that that is a legal argument, right? It is not a policy argument. It's also really striking if you just go to SCOTUS blog and look at the briefs in this case. Big cases like this often are more symmetrical in a number of briefs you see yeah. filed. The asymmetry is it's, really stark no, in this case. It got case. ratioed. Yeah. It really got <laughs> totally ratioed. Right. And even of the two briefs that, uh, two of the like, you know, maybe eight or 10 briefs that purport to be on the side of the federal government, um, one is this Cato Institute brief that yeah. is like, you know, on the, a brief in support of DACA as a matter of policy, but in support of the administration as a matter of law. So that's this kind of hybrid brief. And then there's an ad law brief in support of neither party. So even some of the briefs that purport to be on the government side are actually not. And We're then, not like totally said, there with you. No, guys. don't. And <laughs> very few parties are. And yeah. and like you said, there's just like this amazing range on the other side. This goes back to public confidence, yeah. right? I mean, this is such a popular program. There's such a sympathetic set of petitioners. I mean, I imagine that this is something that Chief Justice Roberts understands and is thinking about. I mean, so, and again, kind of weighing the broader institutional concerns about the court's legitimacy. Yeah, I think so. Um, And it does seem like it'll probably come down to him, that case, like so many of these cases. Well, it is the Roberts court. Yeah. Um, Okay, so maybe I'll flag one more, um, which is actually being argued on the same day as the DACA cases, which is Hernandez versus Mesa. And we should probably say that Leah is not going to talk about either of these two cases because she's on briefs in both of them. Yes. so, okay, Hernandez versus Mesa. Um, I'm going to quote from the Supreme Court regarding what the case is about um, because it is actually the second time this case has been there. Um, so the court said the first time it issued this procurium order in this case, this case involves a tragic cross-border incident in which a United States Border Patrol agent standing on United States soil shot and killed a Mexican national standing on Mexican soil. So fired a gun across the border and killed a Mexican national. Now, what's not in the summary is that this is a kid, right? This yeah. is a 15-year-old boy. He and his friends were playing a game in which they run up to a border fence, touch it, run back down, um, and that that's what this boy, Sergio Hernandez, and his friends were doing when he was shot in the head and killed by a U.S. Border Patrol agent, right? It's just like horrifying facts. Um, And I actually don't think those facts are, as a legal matter, not in dispute at this stage of the proceedings. Um, And I should also say that although this sounds like absolutely a horrifying anomaly, these cross-border shootings are actually not that uncommon, right? There have been a lot of them. Um, So it's not just this case. I mean, we'll talk about the implications more broadly, but it's not just this case that will be affected. The question about whether um, the Constitution gives his family any remedy in court um, is much more complicated. Um, So basically, his family filed a lawsuit, and 
early on, I said this case has been up to the Supreme Court once before. So early on, there were a few questions involved in the case, um, whether the Fourth and Fifth Amendments applied extraterritorially, right, to somebody who actually wasn't in the physical United States, Mm -hmm. um, whether qualified immunity protected an officer under these circumstances, and whether a Bivens remedy was appropriate here. Um, I'll explain what that is in a minute, but basically the case has now um, been limited just to the third of those questions. So Bivens is this 1971 case that gives individuals the right to sue federal officials for violating their constitution rights, but subject to limitations and exceptions, particularly in recent years. So like I said, the case was before the court two years ago. The court then decided this case called Ziegler versus Abbasi, um, which is a basically a case that said that applying Bivens, these causes of action directly under the Constitution, in new spheres was a disfavored judicial activity. So the court doesn't overrule Bivens, but says some pretty limiting things about the application of Bivens. So the Supreme Court decided that other case and then remanded this case so that the Fifth Circuit could reconsider it in light of its intervening Bivens decision. So the Fifth Circuit took a look at this case and said in light of um, Abbasi, no, no Bivens remedy is available here. This whole kind of cross-border shooting sphere is new. We had never actually recognized a Bivens remedy in this context before. And so, sorry, family, no remedy available. And it actually turns out that most circuit courts since the Ziegler versus Abbasi case um, have also taken this extremely narrow view of Bivens. The plaintiffs here argue, look, there has to be some remedy if federal officials violate the Constitution. Um, Here, you can't even bring a tort claim in state court in Texas because the Texas tort remedy is preempted by a federal statute. And all of the kind of original purposes of Bivens – support finding in these very narrow circumstances when no other remedy could conceivably exist, allowing this family to just proceed with their litigation, regardless of what the ultimate merits of the case, whether they get any compensation from the government. Regardless of the remedy, but the fact that they can claim a remedy, and this is something that's being raised by the family in the briefs. Like, this is simply a question of, is there an avenue for a remedy when all other avenues have been foreclosed? Because if there isn't, you are basically allowing federal officials to have free reign yeah. to do this kind of thing. Right. And and I mean, I think that the, the plaintiffs in this case do suggest that, you know, it, it is it, – A, it's the fact that there have been a number of these yes. kind of f- factual scenarios like this, but mm-hmm. B – the question of accountability in rogue federal officials is really at the heart of this case. And, you know, in a way it does feel to me like – and the briefs seem pitched in this direction – that the newest members of the court um, who harbor – and particularly this is true about Justice Gorsuch, yes. who does seem to harbor this kind of deep-seated skepticism, skepticism. about government power, yes. would be receptive to arguments that allowing government officials, you know, particularly ones who – are, you know, have this coercive power, are carrying weapons, or can do all kinds of harm to individuals um, to exist totally free from any kind of yeah. possible accountability is something that the Constitution would be troubled by, right? That Gorsuch's Constitution would seem to care about accountability, and particularly for rogue federal officials, right? They, the briefs are very clear that this is not the mine run of officials who are going to be facing these kinds of Bivens claims. But when we're talking about this kind of outlier behavior and no other legal remedy, this has to exist. Well, in a republic, if you can keep it, right. one of the central themes is that you cannot actually have Republican government if too much power is consolidated in either the federal. The people have to have something. And so, I mean, this might be one place where I I would imagine they would be playing to Justice Gorsuch. Uh, It's also worth mentioning, and we talked a little bit about this in our 
summer episode on reproductive rights and justice, like, you know, this is about a cross-border shooting, but you might also have a Bivens claim in a situation like, for example, a sexual assault in a detention facility on the border that is used for immigration control. And, you know, there was just a really searing report um, in the media this week about the number of assaults and um, molestations that have been reported on of the children who are now in federal custody yeah. at the border. So, I mean, this is something, too, where families might plausibly not have other avenues of relief, and Bivens relief might be the only way to hold um, alleged assaulters to account. And so, I mean, this goes beyond this particular issue. And of course, there's the broader issue of police violence. I mean, this is a situation, I think, if you you are someone who has been attentive to the Black Lives Matters movement, this is a place where that kind of question might also arise in the area where there is no federal remedy for excessive force if Bivens is foreclosed in this way. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can see them drawing some kind of a line and saying um, this the application here would be new because you have this sort of factual wrinkle, which right. is that there's a border that intercedes for the scenarios you're describing. Presumably, the abuse Maybe happens domestic. on U.S. Yeah. soil. But but I think that, you know, the the whether Ziegler versus Abbasi really kind of meant to quietly overrule Bivens and say these remedies no longer exist or simply meant to kind of cabin and clarify, but, you know, Mm -hmm. permit to persist these really important kind of vehicles. um, I think the court kind of has to has to address that question in this case. Um, And uh, and so it's going to be a big day, November 12th at the court. Yeah. Lots to talk about. Um, Another case that's coming before the court that I don't actually think a lot of people have really given a lot of thought to, it's going to be argued on November 13th, but I actually think this might be a sleeper case for this term. And that case is Comcast Corporation versus National Association of African American Owned Media. And again, I don't think a lot of people think this is going to be a big deal, but I think if you peel back the onion on this case, whew, boy, this is a case that's going to have really serious repercussions for anti-discrimination law, um, just general plaintiffs in anti-discrimination cases actually being able to get beyond the pleading stage and bring their cases to court. So let me um, tee up the narrow issue that the court has framed for review, and it's whether a plaintiff can state a claim under Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 by alleging that racial discrimination was a motivating factor for the defendant's refusal to contract with the plaintiff or whether the plaintiff must in fact state that racial discrimination was the but-for cause for the defendant's refusal to contract. And just to give you a little background on the statute, Section 1981 is a provision of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was passed um, during Reconstruction for the purpose of eradicating discrimination against formerly enslaved persons. And Section 1981 specifically prohibits discrimination in contracting. So it has huge ramifications um, in business, um, in rental markets, leases, anywhere where a contract might be used is a place where you might be able to use 1981 to deal with racial discrimination in the denial of a contract or the refusal to contract. And so this case involves an African-American-owned television network, ESN, which is owned by Byron Allen. Do you know who Byron Allen is? Not as well as you do. (sighs) 
So Byron Allen is this television personality from the 1980s when I was a kid. He was on the show called Real People, which in retrospect was a precursor of every reality TV show we've ever had. So it was just going around California and the country filming people doing sometimes cool things, mostly stupid things, but it was just, it was basically a reality TV show and at the time Byron Allen was a student at the University of Southern California and I, I think also an athlete there, very attractive, very good looking and he gets roped into real people, becomes a television personality. I mean, he's basically OJ without the serious football career, but then also without the serious criminal career afterwards that came later. So he's, he's and he actually parlays this television personality stint of his career into an entrepreneurial stint where he begins acquiring local television stations, um, creates a kind of television network that's owned um, by him, and he starts partnering with other African-American media networks. Um, and he, he wants to be able to get the shows that they are putting together, and they're going to get them on big cable networks like Comcast, AT&T, and the like. And so he's arguing here that when he approached Time Warner, DirecTV, and Comcast, they refused to contract with him. And in one of his briefs, he actually notes he's later investigating why they won't contract him with him, why they won't contract with other African-American-owned media stations, um, why they're only contracting with white-owned television networks. And I think someone tells him kind of sub rosa, the reason why they're doing this and why we're not contracting with you is because we don't want to create another Bob Johnson. And Bob Johnson, if you don't know, is the billionaire creator of BET, Black Entertainment Television, um, the sort of preeminent black billionaire in the country. And so there seems, or at least Byron Allen believes, that there are serious racial dimensions to Comcast's refusal to do business with him and other African-American-owned networks and instead favoring contracts with lesser-known, white-owned media contracts. So he's filed this suit under Section 1981 alleging racial discrimination, but he's saying that the racial discrimination was a – race was a motivating factor in Comcast's decision. Comcast, in its rebuttal, has argued that in order to successfully plead your claim under Section 1981, Byron Allen it is not enough to show that race was a motivating factor. Instead, you have to show something much more precise, which is that race was the but-for cause. If it weren't for race, we would have contracted with you. Like that's, and that's a much higher bar to clear, a much narrower threshold for him. And so this is basically a question of what is going to be the standard mm -hmm. to plead a claim. And it has huge ramifications for other Section 1981 plaintiffs, um, most of whom are not going to be very rich African-American entrepreneurs, will just be ordinary Joes trying to get a lease, trying to get a contract and something. And when they get to the point where they're on a motion 12B6 decision, where they're trying to figure out if they're going to stay and be able to plead their case or if they're just getting chucked out of court right away, they have to be able to prove this higher standard, that race was the but-for cause for why this contract never happened or why um, they experienced this discrimination. So this went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit um, said that only motivating 
race as a motivating factor was all that was needed, and that would have allowed Byron Allen to continue um, his quest to prosecute his case in the courts. Uh, if the court reverses the Ninth Circuit here and holds that Section 1981 requires but-for causation and Byron Allen has failed to state a claim under Section 1981, this is going to make it a lot harder for suits alleging racial discrimination to survive a 12B motion to dismiss. It's also going to implicate, I think, other anti-discrimination statutes, many of which are modeled on the Civil Rights Act of 1866 um, and the, th the standards of causation that are required to plead a claim under those anti-discrimination statutes. So Title IX, for example, is another place where showing that gender was one of the factors, a motivating factor, would be narrowed to requiring plaintiffs to show that gender was the but-for cause of the discrimination suffered. Um, so I think that's a really important case that's going to have huge repercussions. And it's really not getting a lot of attention at all. And I, I know that um, Byron Allen has certainly wanted to see it get more attention because I think the the implications for him are huge, but mm -hmm. I think the implications for questions of racial justice are even broader, and, and that is worth mentioning. Um, Byron Allen is being represented by Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who seems to have all kinds of time in addition to deaning. I don't know how he's doing it. When you it. were the dean of Berkeley Law School, how many Supreme Court arguments did you do, Melissa? Uh, very easy. <laughs> Absolutely none. <laughs> Zero Supreme Court arguments on my watch. But I was, of course, dealing with my own lawsuit at Berkeley Law Center. Was so I was that. in court. Well, I, was, I don't know if you're yes, actually in court. Um, but you were, not in court, you were but dealing being, with yeah. court adjacent. Court adjacent. <laughs> it was court adjacent. But, By the way, I'm sure you could have handled a Supreme Court argument if one just fell in your lap I while mean, you were deaning. Um, well, I, I, I think this is real. I mean, and it really does sort of speak to this idea of like a public law school. Like one of the things that Irwin has mentioned is that he takes a Supreme Court case a year because it's really important as someone who has been at a public law school, he was at UC Irvine before, now he's at Berkeley, to be engaged with matters that are important for the public and the development of the law. And this is one of those. So he is representing Byron Allen. I secretly want to know if he knew Byron Allen mm. when Byron Allen was a student at USC, because at that time, I think Irwin was also at USC mm, teaching. So maybe. I'm putting all of this together. And if you can't tell by now, I was a huge Byron Allen fan <laughs> in the 1980s. So I think this case is, I'm going to be watching this case so closely. You should go to the court and watch it. You should Do you actually... think he'll be there, Byron Allen? Yes, you I would think, think so. so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, look, I just remember, like, he was the first kind of celebrity that I took notice of, mostly because my mom was like, that man is very attractive. <laughs> but I was like, I concur. <laughs> I would say I had to Google him. I sort of had a vague recollection from the 80s, but uh, but I don't think I had quite Did you Google him? Yeah. He's a good looking Yeah, dude. he's handsome. Yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah. go so, to D.C. Take that cell to D.C. and introduce and yourself. <laughs> I had other stuff to do, but I, I think I'll probably just listen to it in my office. But um, yes. One additional dimension of this case that I think will be interesting is it's, um, you know, having just come off these Title VII cases in which, like, it's a – this is all – we're all textualists, right? Like, what we're doing is arguing about the, the meaning of the word sex. Um, when you have this really old statute, yeah. right, Section 1981 is, like you said, an 1866 statute. No one's really arguing about that question. And I think – Rightly so. I mean, it's also like, you know, the language, all persons shall enjoy the same right to contract as is enjoyed by white citizens or it's something like that. Yeah. I don't have it in front of me. Whether that like race as a cause or the but for cause, like not, neither of those two is encompassed within the text of right. Section 1981. Right. Like in the text won't answer this question. Right. And to me, it just sort of illustrates the limitations of kind of, you know, fetishizing text to answer all of this, right? Like, it's not, no way does, te does the text 
get us very far at all. And the briefs don't even really try to suggest that it does. I should also say more about that because it, again, relates to the Title VII case where you have these plaintiffs and these corporations or businesses that they're fighting with, and then the government steps in. The same thing Mm -hmm. has happened here, right? So this is a case of Byron Allen versus Comcast. Byron Allen is being represented by Erwin Chemerinsky. Comcast is being represented by Miguel Estrada. So heavy hitters Mm -hmm. on both sides. And then the federal government Mm -hmm. has come in on the side of Comcast which I think is so incredibly interesting. So the Trump administration has decided to step in here and also argue this case on behalf of Comcast. Morgan Ratner, who's an assistant to the Solicitor General, will argue for the government as an amicus here. But the government mm-hmm. seems to want to narrow the scope mm-hmm. of these anti-discrimination statutes. And I mean, we, we don't necessarily have to go into the text of the 1866 Civil Rights Act, but we know that it was intended to allow newly freed persons access to the marketplace in the same way that their counterparts enjoyed. And so, again, it is a question of economic justice. It's a question of racial justice. And the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and a number of civil rights rights groups have also filed briefs here. Um, And they don't get to the substance of whether Byron Allen is right. They are solely focused on this question of whether the statute requires this higher pleading standard. So that's it, I think, for the previewing. Again, we'll talk about these cases and more when we're going to do – some recaps. Um, but let's talk, you know, court culture a little bit before we go. Okay. Like before we wind up, let's let, I think we should talk a little bit about court culture. The last time Kate and I were here, we had like a bibliography for you of books that you could read about the court. But I actually think we should talk about a court practice that not a lot of people, including myself, are really attuned to. I mean, you have to be a really eagle-eyed court watcher to have caught this and to really understand what it means. And so this is about situations where the court issues invitations to hand-picked litigators to argue before the court. And this became relevant um, just a little over a week ago because the justices agreed to hear a petition for cert at SALA Law versus CFPB. And CFPB, of course, is the Consumer Finance Protection Board. They decided to hear this case, which considers the president's authority to fire the head of an independent agency like the CFPB. And although they haven't set a date for oral argument on this newly granted case, they did issue this week an invitation to Paul Clement to argue the case on behalf of the CFPB. So you'll remember that the CFPB is the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, and it has been a target of Republicans since it was created. Interestingly, Paul Clement is no liberal lapdog. He is a former Scalia clerk, and more pertinently, he has argued consistently for business community interests at the Supreme Court. So his defense of the Consumer Bureau is one I think that is a little surprising, puts him at odds perhaps, at least in this case, with groups like the Chamber of Commerce and others that have questioned the CFPB's power and the power of its director. So with that wind up in mind, Kate, can you tell us a little bit about the case and 
how Paul Clement, of all people, got tapped to defend this agency. Sure. So I think we'll talk more about the case when it, as you said, hasn't been scheduled yet, but when we get closer to the argument. But we should say that the fact that the court has agreed to take it is in itself a very big deal, right? So we have talked before about the fact that some of the justices, and in particular its newest members, seem badly to want to reduce the size and the scope and the power of administrative agencies. And this case could well be an opportunity to move that project forward. So the fact that it's happening at all, big news. Um, The argument, which you sort of uh, alluded to, but is basically um, that the structure of the CFPB, which, as you said, created in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, violates the separation of powers, right? So the Bureau has just one head who can only be removed by the president for cause, um, you know, for some reason, not just because the president decides one day to fire him, um, and that the other so-called independent agencies whose leadership also enjoys for-cause removal protection um, are different because they have multi-member heads, right? This is the only independent agency with just one head, um, and that is what the challengers have from the beginning is the kind of constitutional infirmity at the heart of the agency. So there have been a couple of challenges brought. Um, The argument that you know, that the board is unconstitutional was unsuccessful in the Ninth Circuit. It was unsuccessful before the on-bank D.C. Circuit, although crucially it was First, it was successful before a panel of the D.C. Circuit in an opinion authored by Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and because it's a, it's the Ninth Circuit case that's going up as opposed to the D.C. case that's going up, I actually don't think he's recused. Um, so I kind of think we know what he thinks about this agency. Um, and, you know, I think we know probably what a few others on the court will. But anyway, we'll come back to the merits. But the really interesting short-term development, which is what you alluded to, is that um, – because the Trump administration has joined in the challenge to the constitutionality of this federal agency, right? Now it's the federal government attacking the constitutionality of a federal agency. The court decided to appoint an amicus to defend the constitutionality of the structure of the CFPB. And the background here, as you said, it's a kind of obscure practice, but basically about once each term, the court invites the participation of an amicus curiae or a friend of the court. And that's usually because one party to a case either chooses not to advance a particular argument or declines to participate at all. Now, these are different from, remember, we were obviously talking about the amicus briefs that were filed in the DACA case. Amicus briefs are filed in almost every case the court hears on the merits these days. Um, But those are unsolicited filings by individuals with some stake in a case pending before the court. Um, These are invitations that originate in the court, the issue to a particular party. They come paired with the right to uh, participate in oral arguments. Um, And... um, and we, they just share the name, right, amicus curiae. So um, – and it's pretty frequently the case that it's the federal government's change in position or a decision not to defend a lower court uh, judgment that results in the need to appoint an amicus. So a recent decision people – a recent example of this that people might be familiar with was the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. So the Obama administration stopped defending the constitutionality of DOMA. The House actually intervened to defend DOMA. And the Supreme Court wanted someone to take the position that the House lacked the authority to defend DOMA. So what did it do? It appointed a law professor, right? Um, Harvard's Vicki Jackson, um, who made that argument before the court. So there are actually like substantive questions that these appointments raise. Is it weird for the court to generate a controversy when there actually isn't one, right? There's this core idea that the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general are restricted to resolving cases and controversies, right? They don't just like opine on things. And if there isn't an adverse conflict, should the court be creating one? But the court has sort of decided it's going to do this. If a case is, you know, otherwise appropriate for resolution, it's going to bring somebody in to to, um, advocate a position that's not otherwise represented. Um, So what I think is so interesting, and I actually wrote a paper about this a couple of years ago is this kind of quasi-sociological question, which is who 
gets these appointments. Um, so, you know, look, the Supreme Court is a fairly insular and clubby place. And <laughs> these appointments are in some ways a kind of paradigmatic example of that. Like, So I took a look in this article from a few years ago at just like who It's got- a very fancy article. It's in the Cornell Law <laughs> It's Review. not that fancy an article, it's but it does have fancy. a good appendix, although it's now a couple of years out of date. Well, but what's I did- it called? It's going to call Invitations to the Friends court. of the Court. Friends of the Court yeah. by Kate Shaw. Um, so, you know, if you are dying for 30,000 words on this topic, pick up that article. Um, but it really is this like, you know, I, I think it is. It's not a sociological piece, right? It's a legal piece, but it, I think, has this the, this question at the heart of it, which is not really about doctrine so much as the kind of this institutional culture of the court that creates these invitations mm-hmm. and then who gets them. Um, and I think it actually is this kind of quasi-patronage systems, system that exists at the Supreme Court. If you take a look at who gets these appointments, it is the friends and former law clerks of the justices. It is frequently a former law clerk. So it's often the circuit justice. So the justice who is the kind of the administrative um, head of the circuit in which the case mm-hmm. arises. So this Sella case comes from the Ninth Circuit. Kagan is now the Ninth Circuit justice. And so Justice Kagan, it is well understood, is the one who issued the invitation so I, to Paul Clement. So back with Windsor mm-hmm. and Doma, mm-hmm. that was a case coming out of the Second Circuit. Mm-hmm. So does that mean Justice Ginsburg was the one who issued the invitation of Vicki Jackson? So I think we know that it was Justice Ginsburg okay. who, who issued it. More recent invitees have spoken you know, publicly about having received the call, and it does typically come from, from the, the justice. circuit justice. Yeah, yeah, the circuit justice, right, We would is, is the term. So usually it's a recent law clerk, not always to that justice, but mm-hmm. or a friend like a Vicki Jackson, I presume, is a friend or friend friendly with Justice Ginsburg. Um, RBG adjacent. Right. Um, and and it's often actually well, the first know. argument opportunity these people get. And that is big. That is incredibly valuable, a Supreme Court argument, right? There aren't that many of them. They're hard to get. So well, I, I mean, like, yeah. this is not, like, total, like, cronyism. I mean, like, Vicki Jackson is a hardcore boss. Of course. Right? Yeah. Um, Paul Clement is a very seasoned litigator. But I think your bigger point is that to the extent – they're fishing in a quite limited pool. There might be other people, again, who might really relish this first-time opportunity to argue before the court who are sort of not even on the table. And and that might be an issue. I think there are a couple issues. One, it's a very limited pool if they basically just say they're friends and former law clerks. Like that's a pretty small and fairly homogenous pool. But even within that pool, they could do a better job of choosing non-white guys to do these arguments (laughs) because that's basically who they choose. Now, there have been a couple of exceptions since I wrote my article, but but almost all of these recent there, recent law clerks, white guys, first-time Supreme Court advocates. So, And there's a big difference, I think, between being an appellate lawyer at a D.C. firm who's done zero Supreme Court arguments and an appellate lawyer at a D.C. firm who's done one, right? Once you've done one, it's much easier to to get get the others. And a wonderful little historical tidbit is that the chief justice himself got his first argument by being an invited amicus in a case in the 1980s called Whisper Halper. Um, And... And you know, like he is got that, rated that... a B minus. <laughs> Actually, I Blackman was just it was, he, he's such a jerk. Like I've listened to that argument. He, Roberts was amazing in that argument, right? I mean, he, for, rated, he, he rated was, him really. Low. He rated him badly. Um, he was amazing. He was so good in that argument. He convinced the justice to take a position that, like, three years later, they were like, "Oh, sorry, like our heads were clouded by the quality of the advocacy, and they reversed themselves." Like that's that at least is the lore. Harry he Blackman did... was just <laughs> sipping on haterade during that argument. Totally. Like, um, but now did look, did this invitation set Roberts on the path that led him to be the chief justice of the United States? Not that, you know, it was it a but for cause? He had other things going for Sure, him. obviously. But, it, you know, I don't think it hurt. And so, yeah, so my point is 
there are lots of good advocates out there, people who have done pl- who've done appellate arguments, who are seasoned practitioners who could very competently discharge the obligations of an amicus argument and the justices should do a better job of diversifying. I mean, this is an opportunity. They have to diversify the incredibly non-diverse ranks of Supreme Court advocates and they should use that opportunity. The November hearing list just came out. So I think there are 27 people arguing before the court in November. And how many of them are women? I think three. It's that's pretty bad. That's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's really bad. Yeah. No, it's it's the numbers have been consistently quite bad, but then they sort of dip lower and you realize like, oh, it could get even worse. So, you know, 10, 15, 17, 20 percent, like I think the numbers of both advocates of color and women advocates usually sort of bounce in that zone, um, but sometimes they dip below 10 percent. And so this is one of those years, I think, where it dipped last year and I think it will likely dip this year. To be really clear, I think SCOTUS is just sort of the cream on what is an equally bad situation at the lower federal courts as well. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, Judge Shira Shinlin, who was a district court judge in the Southern District of New York, um, now she is a federal, an arbitrator, a private arbitrator, but she wrote this article in the New York Times where she talked about the fact that in many of the cases that she heard as a district court judge, they would be a very diverse group of lawyers on both sides, and there would be you know, lawyers of color, women lawyers, but when it came time to argue the motion, it was always a guy, a more senior guy mm-hmm. who got up to argue. And often she would ask questions of the more senior guy who was arguing before her, and the more senior guy would have to turn to his more junior female or associate of color and ask a question, confer, and then come back to her with the answer, and she's like, Obviously, that person knows the case. And we just cut out the intermediary. Why don't, we, why don't you shut up yeah. and let me talk to her? Yeah. And she talked about this, and she said, you know, it really had a terrible um, impact on the training of women and lawyers of color who did not get a lot of opportunities to actively litigate before the court. And because they lacked those opportunities to do motion practice before the court, they weren't going to be in a position to take on bigger litigations in the future. So this sort of narrow pool of lawyers who were arguing before her were always the repeat players because they were the ones the clients would trust. They'd done it before, and these other people were untested. And she notes that it's a client-serving industry. Clients don't want to take risks on people that they don't know about. And so the question is, how do you prevent a skew like this, recognizing that lots of money is on the line, clients want you know the best advocacy, the most um, reliable advocacy they can get. And you know that's often in conflict. And I thought what was so fascinating was that Judge Jack Weinstein and Judge Ann Donnelly, both of the Eastern District of New York, read Judge Shinlin's call to arms and decided to take action. If the law firms and the lawyers would not let their junior associates step up, the courts would promulgate their own courtroom rules that would require them or encourage them to do so. And that's exactly what Judge Weinstein did. So he has a local rule that says, junior members of legal teams representing clients are invited to argue motions they have helped prepared and to question witnesses with whom they have worked. Opportunities to train young attorneys in oral advocacy are rare because of the decline of trials where junior lawyers are familiar with the matter under consideration but have little experience arguing before a court. They should be encouraged to speak by the presiding judge and the law firms involved in the case. 
Yeah, and 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 then they go the the Weinstein sort of rule goes on to say, you know, a bunch of we can have an argument where there's a few people yeah, uh, working for one party. One like that's fine. Yeah. You don't have to choose if if you refuse to relinquish this opportunity, you senior partner, just like carve out five minutes and bring yeah. a junior person up with you. And, and then they can say, yeah. I've argued before the Eastern District yeah. of New York, and I mean, so I, I'm raising this point of court intervention, yeah. like you know, the court shaping a norm. Because the court yeah. could also shape some of these norms. I think it's really interesting. We're at this point where we've had the most women on the court in our history, three. And yet, we're actually going backwards in terms of women and people of color before the bar. Yeah. No, and I know. And that's what's – so I think that the – we'll call it the Kagan invitation to Clement because I'm pretty sure it does issue from her um, – is complicated. So it is disappointing that she doesn't take the opportunity to just say there are a lot of qualified women and people of color who are, if you need an experienced advocate who are experienced advocates, let me reach for one of them instead of Paul Clement giving him his like 98th argument or something like that. He's already arguing half a dozen cases this term, I think. Um, so I do find that disappointing. On the other hand, um, I, you know, he is an absolutely yeah, cool. stellar advocate. He's like advocate. He's a Jedi master before the court. Like I do think, I'm not sure, I have a hard time naming anyone I think but is more effective advocate. part of why he's a Jedi yeah, master is he's, is he's had done all it these opportunities. Times. Yeah. So I guess what I would say is um, here... The stakes for the future of it of the administrative state are so high that having somebody who has this much comfort with the justices, um, and also to be honest, a former solicitor general, which he is, mm-hmm. who you know, I I think there are some subtleties to the way this he will have to argue this case, especially if the justices ask him questions that go beyond sort of the narrow question of the structure of this agency and sort of touch mm-hmm. on other agencies and their structures that he is in some ways uniquely situated to address. Um, but I also really urge them that all the justices when these opportunities do arise to make these invitations it's this tiny little slice of Supreme Court practice but they have total control over it so if this was a value they wanted to inject um, it could have real impact given how low the numbers are like one additional argument would actually make a difference in a sitting and you know what there are others there are other things like this there are special masters these invi- yes. you know they appoint special masters my husband was appointed a special really? master by, what by court? Jack Weinstein that's fabulous and you know what I think they're time consuming sometimes they don't pay that well like the mm-hmm. court you know there's compensation involved but like it's not a money making opportunity opportunity and and yet it's a great it's a great way to sort of try a new type of practice and guess what the court does a terrible job it basically goes to the same like white male practitioners yeah. who like have water and boundary expertise every time it does one of those cases um and those are also amazing opportunities to practice mm-hmm. you know not before the court in the you know the the proceedings but you know preparing the report but then you do actually argue in court so there are lots of ways that judges and those with sort of control partners, you know, professors mm-hmm. can, I think, sort of spread the wealth a little bit of these opportunities in ways that will allow, you know, junior members and women and people of color to get more opportunities that then generate additional opportunities so that like, you know, and and yet it's a shrinking universe and it is disconcerting. So the Supreme Court advocacy universe is, you know, it is small and it is getting smaller, right? Like the kind of the expert bar is a few dozen people and they're, and they're total repeat players. And I yes. think that as the justices get used to hearing the same kind of cadence and the same style of argument, they think, I think it makes them even more averse to yeah. newcomers who yeah. might like shake it up a little bit. And that's not good for the court of the development of the law, frankly. Well, it does seem like in some of the low stakes cases where they're issuing invitations like social security cases. For example, last term, Amy Weil was asked to argue a social security case, Culbertson versus Berryhill. And as you pointed out to me earlier, um, in Smith versus Berryhill, another case of that nature, a non-clerk and um, a person of color, Deepak Gupta, was asked to argue. So 
low level for sure, not the CFPB case. But you know what? I think every Supreme Court argument is a huge deal, you know? Yes. Um, and so, and and I, I think that those were great and, um, and, you know, suggested to me that maybe this sort of trend was shifting and it may be that this Paul Clement invitation is a bit of an anomaly and we will see them be a little bit more sensitive to well, kind I, of I expanding so. or diversifying the ranks. I hope so too. Well, I mean, again, so... There has been a lot of chatter about diversifying the ranks of clerks. I mean, I think we we hear about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I know um, Vince Chabria, who is a judge on the Northern District of California, has talked about a kind of Rooney rule, like when you're hiring clerks, like, you know, to make sure that you are picking from a diverse pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and other judges are following through on that, too. But I think it's really important to re- recognize that the ecosystem of the courthouse is not just the judge and the clerks, but these special masters, these appointed um, parties who are brought in on an ad hoc basis, as in these invitations. Like those two are parts of the court ecosystem. And those are also enormous credential building opportunities for young lawyers, especially those who historically may not have been privy to those kinds of opportunities. Yeah. So that's our call. If yeah. you have, if you're in, if you're in one of these ecosystems, like think about it's not just hiring law clerks, right? It's sort of there are these other kinds of interventions that you might yes. be able to make. Yes, um, it's like yeah. is there a song that springs to mind when you think about this stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I was just thinking like when when you were like Paul Clement, I was like, where are my girls at? Uh-huh. Like there are three women yeah. like arguing before the court in November. Like that's, I mean, again, that is unconscionable. Like we are at the point now. We we both teach in law schools where it is unexceptional to have 50% of the student body be women, to have three of 27 advocates be Mm. women at the Supreme Court is shocking. Where are my girls at? (laughs) All right. Um, That's all we have time for today. Um, Thank you once again for joining us. We've gotten such great responses from all of you in the listener community. I was just at my law school reunion a couple of weeks ago, and I had a number of students come up and tell me that they love strict scrutiny. Thank you for saying hello. Thank you for listening to the show. You can follow strict scrutiny on Twitter at strict scrutiny underscore. You can look at our website, www.strictscrutinypodcast.com. You can also find opportunities to boast, wear your strict scrutiny pride um, on your chest. We have sweatshirts, t-shirts, dog bandanas, everything you could want for your holiday shopping at the Strict Scrutiny website. And of course, you can follow all of us on Twitter as well. We could not do this without the tremendous assistance of not only Jamie and Leah, but also our terrific producer, Melanie Rowell, who is back from her honeymoon. Congratulations on your marriage, Melody. Um, We are also grateful to Catherine, who helped us out during Melody's honeymoon. And we are also very especially grateful to Eddie Cooper, who wrote the incredibly cool intro music that we use. And of course, our two favorite guys down here in the sound room, Joe Rivera and Greg Addison at NYU, who are helping us make this recording and make us sound good every single time. So thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, Melissa. All right. We'll see you guys later. We're out. <laughs>